Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is the author of a book I just read, and it's a fascinating read. It's called Authenticity. And uh, Alice, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, I'd love to introduce myself. So, um, as you say, I'm I'm the author of this book that looks at authenticity in the round, in the very wide uh Everything from authenticity of people to authenticity of art to authenticity and originality in fashion and brands, uh, and even right at the end, looking at the slightly, well, the very technological mess that we've got ourselves into. And the aim of the book really was to answer a big question, which was, we live in an age where Authenticity, we say that the pursuit of authenticity is more important to us than ever before. And yet, at the same time, we seem to be living in a world that is faker than ever before. Um, and I'm sure we'll come to it, but I think one of the things that is so fascinating now is that quite often you don't know if you're talking to a person or a computer. And I was actually doing a bit of online shopping the other day uh, and had to ask the chat function some something. You know, there was a lovely sort of photograph of a person. And for a minute, I actually thought it was a person. And then I thought it was a rather dim person. And then I realised I was being unfair. <laughs> and what it was was a reasonably clever robot. But there are, of course, more serious things. Um, issues of authenticity. I mean, who you meet online matters. Um, who clicks on your adverts that you've paid for whether it's people or bots, that matters a lot. Um, obviously, we're living at a time when the first European war in many decades has been started on the basis of a, an inauthentic portrayal of history. But then you also get the really left-field things like a few weeks ago, um, I don't know if you saw that, they put Maradona's football shirt up for auction. So this was meant to be the actual football shirt he was wearing in the match, uh, the Britain-Argentina match, in which he scored the famous Hand of God goal. Does that mean, I, do you, I don't know if you follow it at all, um, but one of the most iconic and um, argued about goals, I think, ever. And Sotheby's were auctioning it, and the reserve price was $4 million. And they said it was the authentic shirt, and Maradona's family said it wasn't. So suddenly, authenticity of a football shirt, of all things, can make the difference between very few dollars and $4 million. So it's a very interesting topic. Now, authenticity has sort of historically meant the real item, but I think it has become a, a wider or alternative meaning now? It's, it is quite interesting. As you say, the oldest uh, meaning for authenticity is, if you like, factual authenticity or verisimilitude, so that the things that we see and read and are reported actually um, relate <laughs> to reality. They're, they're more or less what goes on in the real world. Um, so uh, one of the examples um, I use is that an authentic account of a presidential inaugura inauguration 
actually states the number of people who are there, were there, as opposed to the number of people that particular president would have liked to be there. So it conforms reasonably closely to reality. That's that's the, the, the traditional version. Um, but, and it's taken about 300 years to develop, a more modern view of authenticity is personal authenticity. And that's very, very different. That's to do with feelings rather than facts. Uh, it's subjective. It's I discover what the true authentic me is. It's subjective. It's about feelings. It's a voyage of discovery. It's personal. And it's a very different beast because if you're trying to argue about personal authenticity, you sort of can't. Because I know, only I know my feelings, only I know what I'm feeling. So it's completely unarguable, it's completely personal. And that's completely different from the other the other type of authenticity, uh, which you can argue about, because it's about factual things, it's about things that are in the world, it's about things that we can discover, if you like, empirically. And, and a whole load of our problems, of our problems, I think, are because we tend to confuse one type of authenticity with the other. So we tend to think that somebody who is true to themselves and marches to the the beat of their own drum is also something who will be someone who will be true to the rest of us. And it doesn't follow. So I'm getting philosophical um, where I thought we were were going to talk about clothes, but we can talk about clothes too. Um, But I think those two different sorts are at the root of a lot of our confusion, our our problems about authenticity, if that makes sense. It does. Now, let's get to clothes. (laughs) Um, Because you do, actually, even though your book isn't sort of really about clothes at all, have quite a few examples from the clothes world. Um, One of the the really uh, excellent ones is, um, is the Tuxedo Land chapter, where... Y-S-L, I won't even try the French pronunciation of, uh, <laughs> of the brand. <laughs> I, I, yeah. It, it originally made a dress based on a tuxedo mm. and had a modicum of success with that. And what happened after what, that? What happened after that? So I have one slight advantage, which is I am half French. So so I get to go, the person in, historically, the designer most associated with what, and I didn't know what to call it because the Americans call it tuxedo and, and the English call it black tie or dinner suit or dinner jacket. And the French call it le smoking because it was based on smoking jackets. But I thought we all know what tuxedo means. So the, the, the designer most associated with the tuxedo, historically, uh, was Yves Saint Laurent. Uh, and not just the tuxedo, but his version of it, which was complete historical game changer when he created a tuxedo for women, uh, which was just a fashion sensation uh, because women in 1966 didn't often wear trousers, never mind the whole dinner suit. And it was very 
empowering and it was very um, sleek and different and uh, um, liberating for those who felt brave enough to wear it. So he became very associated with taking the dinner suit, the tuxedo, and turning it into a suit that women could wear. Then later on, he did it in a great many versions, in different fabrics, um, different weights, different styles. And then um, what he did was he created a dress based on the dinner jacket. So it had the double rows of buttons. Um, it had, well, we can have a, a big garmology discussion about whether a tuxedo should have grosgrain or satin lapels. He did it with satin lapels, but it was unmistakably a dress, a sleeveless dress based on the classic dinner jacket. Um, and that was a sensation. 20 years later, he thought it was time for a reissue. He brought out an haute couture version of it, and he was about to bring out the ready-to-wear version uh, when someone in his office was leafing through a magazine and saw a picture of the dress, or what they thought was the dress. Uh, but to their complete horror, it, it wasn't the Saint Laurent dress at all. It was one that looked amazingly similar by the very similarly named Ralph Lauren. And they went, are we allowed to say apeshit? Yeah. They went nuts. Not only did he feel, this is my design, I'm a creator, and you've taken my design, um, but also um, the French were at that point very, very snobby about the Americans who they didn't see as genuine fashion designers, but what they called, regarded as, I call them, jumped up garmentos, as in just, you know, stitches, not creators. And um, he promptly sued, Yves Saint Laurent promptly sued Ralph Lauren for a huge amount of money, demanding that he destroy all the copies uh, and pay damages. Uh, and Ralph Lauren um, got the hump and said... I have no need to copy you. I can create my own designs, thank you very much, and I'm going to sue you for defamation. And it was just the fashion spat to end all fashion spats. Uh, but I think what was really interesting about it was that they weren't just arguing about a dress. What they were arguing about was something more interesting and more cultural. They were arguing about... Who owned that design? Who owned the, I call it, who was the rightful heir to Tuxedo Land? And they were also arguing about two different sorts of creation, or copyright, if you like, um, because in the Saint Laurent couture world, um, copyright is used for protection because you are seen, the designer is seen as a creator. But in Ralph Lauren's world, um, things, designs are seen as coming from a place rather than from a person. Uh, and that's protected by trademark copyright. So if you look at what a lot of Ralph Lauren does, 
it's very much based on Americana. It's American jeans jacket. It's fringed cowboy jackets. It's tuxedos because tuxedos, the legend goes, were invented in the small town of Tuxedo in upstate New York. So he's got a very different concept of creation. And there's a lovely creation story which says in, I think it was 1866, in the Tuxedo Country Club, where all the elders were still wearing very formal tailcoats with long tails, um, one of the young blades, uh, who rejoiced in the, the name of uh, Griswold Lorillard, Grizzy, um, encouraged his friends to, co- to go to the, the annual dance, but not in their formal tailcoats because those were too stuffy. They literally chopped off the tails and wore them as basically bum freezer jackets. And that is the American tuxedo legend. That is how tuxedo was, the tuxedo was born in that version of the story. Um, and Ralph Lauren, as an American born about 100 miles south of there, felt he owned the tuxedo. So you had these very conflicting cultural views, uh, and also, obviously, the design is worth quite a lot of money, um, which were playing out. Uh, And uh, I found that very interesting because it... What does it do? It says it says a lot about our view of originality. It says that in both cases they wanted to claim that they owned the original, the origin of the tuxedo. They wanted, if you like, to uh, create a land grab and say the tuxedo is is mine in a very proprietorial way. And both claims of originality um, meant that they neglected those who had gone before. They neglected all the people who, over the years, had done the little incremental creative adjustments that actually led, that actually lead to most designs. And I think this is an issue with a lot of designers, and you can't blame them, is that they want to say that whatever they've made is unique and original. Because, of course, they can sue anyone who produces something similar. But I'm not sure that that is always the case, because I think most designs evolve um, and are improved by great designers, but they evolve. Uh, rather than being just one whiz-bang act of creation. And I think it's very unfair uh, to all the other people who've participated in that that, that act of design. Because it's not as if those tuxedos were just sort of a flash of light and they came into existence. They were iteration number 7,000 of something that started way, way back. They were exactly, exactly so. Exactly so. And I think if we apply that concept of novelty or owning originality, that intellectual property land grab, I call it, where you're trying to say, this is all me, 
you find yourself in a very peculiar position. And we see it not just in fashion, but for instance, when um, one of the examples I use is that artists, artists as in musical artists, try to trademark slogans. So we had Taylor Swift trying to trademark, I think it was party like it's 1989, that phrase, or and this sick beat. Now, these are really common or garden phrases <laughs> in, in certain circles. Yeah. But she wants to put a marker down and claim ownership. Um, we have Kylie Jenner, who tried to trademark Kylie, the name Kylie. I can tell you, Miss Kylie Minogue put a stop to that pretty quickly. So it is these sort of land grabs that really don't make sense. They make commercial sense for the person doing it, but less sense for everybody else working in fashion or in music or who happens to be called Kylie. Regarding the, the tuxedo from Tuxedo, and the natty story of cutting the tails off a tailcoat. Is there any sort of evidence that that's actually a true story, or is it just too good to be true? Uh, it's a wonderful story, and it's the one that has spread. It's, it's, it's kind of a fashion meme. Uh, when I looked into it, there were, well, there was one other story that was very, very nice that said it wasn't actually young Grizzy who brought the shorter jacket to the tuxedo club. It was a rather duller man called Mr. Potter. And Mr. Potter was a member of the club, sort of older member of the club. And he'd been to Britain, where he'd been a guest with his wife uh, of the Prince of Wales. And the Prince of Wales very much favoured shorter velvet smoking jackets when the you know, ladies were asked to leave and the gentlemen retired with their cigars and all that. Uh, and Mr. Potter was so enchanted by these that apparently uh, he went off and had some made because the Prince of Wales said he should. Anyway, the idea was, the story goes, Mr. Potter came back, minus his wife, because the Prince of Wales was quite keen on attractive wives, but he at least brought the, <laughs> he at least brought the shorter jacket to... Um, to the tuxedo club, and it wasn't grizzy at all. That is the second slight, still fun, but less less fun story than young grizzy chopping off the tails. Do you want me to let everybody down and say what I think is actually the case? I think you have to keep going. I have to keep going. Okay, so both of those are good. Both of, both of those are sexy stories. Actually, probably what was the was the actual truth is that simply various members of uh, the Posh Tuxedo Country Club. Um, also, when they came to London, happened to go to the same tailor, Messrs Poole, as the Prince of Wales, and they bought some shorter jackets, and they were already wearing them. And young Grizzy wasn't really doing anything dramatic because everybody was already wearing the shorter jackets. Um it was just a young young man copying his elders. I feel a bit sorry for Grizzy now. I feel very sorry for Grizzy because because his his origin story is the best, um, and that's why it's the one that you'll find everywhere. Um, 
but it probably isn't true. And neither is the Mr. Potter one, because the you know how Savile Row tailors keep very, very good records. There's no record of a Mr. Potter ever having gone there. But we love these stories. I wonder what happened to his wife now. We she we we think we do know. I think she did become she she was an actress, and I think she did then have a career in Britain. We don't know what she did with the Prince of Wales, but we make up these stories. We take little bits, a little bit like fashion and design. We take the good bits, the little jewelled buttons and the little bit of flair in our stories, and 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 we make a better story out of it. It's creativity. It's what I call incremental improvement. We just take bit by bit, it gets better and better. So given that the story wasn't really like Ralph Lauren made it out to be, how does that sort of influence his position in it? Well, I mean, Ralph Lauren has has many, many lawyers. <laughs> so I'm say this quite carefully. And he has been involved in many, many trademark cases. Um, most notably one where he's trying we're trying to protect um the image of polo you you know well you know polo and you know the image of of two mallet wielding polo horsemen uh, and i think he had a case that was i think went on for about 25 30 years before it was settled between polo ralph loren the company and the american polo association as in polo playing yeah. Uh, which was founded, I think, in the 1890s, uh, whereas Polo Ralph Lauren, I think, was founded in the probably in the 70s. Mm. And the American Polo Association started putting little pictures of polo players on their polo shirts. And Ralph Lauren said, no, 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 that looks too much like my logo. And the American Polo Association says, but we're the Polo Association. We do have, <laughs> we have a legitimate interest in putting pictures of polo players on polo shirts. Uh, and that is a lawsuit that went on, I think, for 25 to 30 years. Do you want to know, do your listeners want to know who won? Sure. Um, well, it wasn't the American Polo Association. Good Lord. So, um, as I say, you had... Yves Saint Laurent outraged because he thought his creativity was being copied. You had Ralph Lauren who had put a bid in to be, and think about those Ralph Lauren ads with all those beautiful, beautiful young men in them floating around a sort of New England countryside in their tuxedos um, with the beautiful girls. He had very much made the tuxedo his and helped to popularise it. And he'd even launched a scent, actually, for women called Tuxedo. Um, so uh, uh, his story, and I think, I don't think it's just because it was tried, this, this case was tried in Paris, but his story didn't really find favour with the judge. Uh, and she awarded the case to Ralph Lauren. Uh, sorry, to Yves Saint Laurent, excuse me. <laughs> to Yves Saint Laurent. <laughs> <laughs> but Ralph Lauren won damages because Yves Saint Laurent and Pierre Berger had been so rude about him. So uh, it, it is an interesting story. Uh, I don't know how it would have played out if the court had been elsewhere, not France. <laughs> 
where France really, France really believes in the idea of fashion designer as creator, whereas America really believes much more in trademark and origin um, accounts of what makes something original or authentic. I imagine in America the case would have dragged on for 25, 30 years. But, uh... you, <laughs> you might think. You might think. But didn't anyone really stop to look and see whether Yves Saint Laurent, my valiant attempt, uh, had actually created something that was wholly original? No, they, no, they, they didn't because he was so identified with this tuxedo for women called Le Smoking. Uh, and I, I occasionally try this story out on people in fashion. Um, and I say Ralph Lauren's tuxedo and they go, yes, Le Smoking. Um, he was pretty indelibly associated with it. But of course, he must have got the female tuxedo idea from the male tuxedo. And the very fact that he called it Le Smoking suggests, well, he said in terms, that it derived from the Edwardian shorter jackets worn mm. by the men when they retired to smoke and the ladies, or rather when the ladies left and, and the men retired to smoke their cigars and drink their brandy and they changed into more comfortable shorter jackets. So in a funny way, these origin stories do meet. But you can also see why, for all sorts of reasons, people want to claim more credit for a design and therefore give less credit to all the uh, designers who went before them. So I'm not really, I'm not at all anti-designer, not at all. Uh, what I what I really would like is all designers, even the ones we've never heard of, um, who moved a button here or changed a lapel to be made out of grogram or satin to get more credit. It is strange, though, how, I mean, I'd say that there isn't really a lot of new ideas coming up in the fashion or clothes world. And I do constantly see designers saying they're going back in their vintage archives or they're going hunting for vintage or renting access to a vintage collection to try to come up with some new ideas, which seems a bit ironic because they're plundering old ideas. But Well, it's, I think it's, it's quite difficult for them because, well, as you know, and I'm sure your listeners know, the fashion cycle has just speeded up insanely. So whereas a designer might have had to produce, I don't know, uh, a summer and a winter collection or an, or an autumn and a spring, they're now four or six collections that they have to do each year, all called things that like cruise and pre-fall and <laughs> it, it, these these fashion drops that they have to do, and I think it must be. I think I think it's incredibly difficult because they have to come up with something new and stunning and newsworthy six times a year. And I I think you only have to look at what happened to Lee to to Alexander McQueen and the kind of pressure that he was under to to um, turbocharge his creativity. To see, to see that kind of pressure. Um, and I think what's very difficult for fashion designers is it's not like art where you can say, 
I'm an artist. I can work in any medium. I can work on in paper, on stone, in video. I can work, you know, I can make a work of art out of my unmade bed or out of feathers or anything. Fashion designers are limited by function to a certain degree, at least. You know, if it's a pair of trousers, it has to have two legs. If it's something you wear, it has to have holes for your arm and your head. Mm. There are only so many iterations that you can do before and and still make it wearable and saleable. And so once you've got six collections a year and everybody trying to be wacky and everybody's done something different and it has to be wearable, it's not that you're running out of ideas. It's that it's more that there's this constant demand for what I call a very thin and specious side concept of novelty. You know, it's more that the press want pictures of half naked. This is more in female fashion. You know, near the new naked dress, uh, or something impossibly unwearable, but that photographs well. I, I, I seriously don't blame them for going back into their archives. And of course, there's the other reason for going back into your archive is you've got something that is indelibly associated with that brand name. So if it is a look that is known to belong to that fashion house, it's a little bit more defensible as well. It's more recognisable uh, and will stand out. And it's, I think, maybe a bit more defensible when the inevitable legion of cop- legions of copiers start trying to copy it. I suppose if it is still one of your current designs, you do have more of a, a right to it. Um, but we do see, see some odd goings on now in the, well, especially the fast fashion world and where they make clothes that have such a short lifespan that they can just copy anything they like because by the time the lawyers have saddled up, it's gone and it's moot anyway. Mm. And I, I saw recently that um, acclaimed copyist brand Zara uh, were going after Shein, uh, which is the sort of new king of <laughs> stealing designs. <laughs> you couldn't, you couldn't make it up, could you? No. I, I, it is, it is very difficult. I walked into a high street women's wear chain who shall be nameless, and. I thought I was in, I was in Gucci knockoff land. And I'm not particularly a designer fashion person, but I do absorb enough of, of the various looks. You know, I've, I, I leave through magazines. I, I'm very interested in the design. And I hadn't, for pandemic reasons and book writing reasons, been into a high street shop. And I did nearly fall over thinking, good grief. This is, this is beyond parody. So I do, I think it's very difficult for the big houses. And I, I, I really can't blame them for being like Louis Vuitton. And this is really for the, the trademark luggage. They have 61 full-time lawyers. Louis Vuitton has 61 full-time lawyers chasing down the counterfeiters. That's, that's how bad it is. A Sisyphus task because they're never going to be able to catch everyone. No, not at all. And one of the things I found is that um, uh, in Korea, uh, 
Louis Vuitton bags are known as three-second bags. And that is because there are so many of them on the street, fake, fake mostly, or fake all, uh, that, that you see one every three seconds. That's how many fakes there are. I can't imagine where you'd go in the world and there'd be three-second bags and they're real. No. Well, maybe some very exclusive streets. Uh, there might be, but, but certainly but certainly not there. But it's such a known thing. So when is it that sort of friendly copying of a design moves into the realm of being counterfeit? <sighs> it's difficult because now, because we live in a world that is so saturated, i.e. there's so much stuff and so many people trying to tell us stuff and sell us stuff. Um, it's, I think, anything that a brand feels might damage its brand and its sales, I think would make it think about pursuing uh, that other, you know, the, 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 the product that looks like it. So you have, and moving out of fashion briefly, you have the situation that um, we all know that fantastic brand of sparkling white wine, which is Champagne and comes from the Champagne region. Um, there is a village in Switzerland that has been producing white wine, I think, since the 16th century, maybe the 17th century. And the name of the village is Champagne. But the Champagne Makers Collective have gone after them and said, you can't use that because you're passing it off. They're not passing it off. They've always been called Champagne. <laughs> They've always made white wine, not the fizzy stuff. But it, in, it, it doesn't infringe any kind of copyright, but it, 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 it infringes upon Potentially, I can't even see it, but it might potentially infringe upon their sales. So you can see why they're doing it, whilst at the same time there's there's some video footage of, I think, of the village having to... I think it has to move its sign. I think it has to take down its sign in the end. It's extraordinary. It's, as I say, literally, almost literally, a, a land grab. So as long as the land grab is worth your while and, and, and you've got deep pockets... Uh, it is worth your while going after um, someone who whose product looks similar, even if that product has got pretty much nothing to do with you. Yeah, that strikes me as more of a sort of legalese move that might not really be well funded. Uh, but I mean, if containers of uh, knockoff bags are coming in from the Far East every day to Rotterdam, and actually, I don't know, are they impacting sales? Because if I was going to buy a fancy Gucci bag, uh, I wouldn't want a knockoff Gucci bag. So it would really only impact sales if I was misled and bought the fake, thinking it was a real one. Well, there's... There's a, there is a lot of research on why people and which people buy fakes. Um, 
at the very top layer, which I think you must be on, um, people would only want the real thing. People who could afford the real thing would want the real thing and they wouldn't want the fake and it would almost be embarrassing uh, to have it. I'm told, I've seen articles, that um, wealthy ladies in New York now think it's frightfully witty to have fakes and have even taken to selling in private parties high-end fakes. So that is so meta that I don't think I can quite deal with that. I think the majority of people who buy fakes know that they're fake, but want regard it like diffusion fashion. They want a little bit of that look, that glamour, that design, but they can't afford the real thing. So they go, okay, I can't afford the real thing. They might justify it to themselves and say, oh, I would never pay that much money anyway. But I think the majority of people knowingly buy a fake um, because they want to be part of the glamorous world that those brands have told us about. And I think if a small number of people buy fakes or diffusion lines, the brands are happy because it means your product is a hit, your design is a hit. It's when too many people start buying the fakes that they mind because it de- it degrades the brand. A little bit like Burberry. It was, it was great when lots of people wanted to wear Burberry and even a few people were wearing fakes. Once they saw the wrong people in head-to-toe Burberry and fakes everywhere, that was no good. And then there are the idiots like me who are in a hurry and buy a bag on a stall in Hoban, which kind of looks nice. <laughs> and it's only when I get to the very, very grand French Museum of Counterfeiting, which compares real designer bags next to fake designer bags in order to educate the public. And I'm just about to go and interview them for my book. And I realised that that bag that I bought off the stall is actually a fake Longchamp pliage bag. And I suddenly think, oh my God, I'm going about to go to the Museum of Counterfeiting carrying the counterfeit and I have to upend everything out of that bag into a Sainsbury's carrier bag. And there's nothing quite like arriving <laughs> at a grand French like they call it, Hotel Particulier, Grand French Building, carrying a Sainsbury's carrier bag. Sorry, Sainsbury's. Uh, to make you feel unstylish. So there are the occasional idiots as well. But I think most people know or half know that they're buying a fake because why would you buy that particular design rather than any other? You've seen it. You've absorbed what the brand wants you to absorb. You just can't afford it or won't afford it. Is that fair? Or do you think I'm being too hard on people or too soft on people? I'm not sure. I mean, I can see how people want a taste of the luxury life. But I sort of think you're kidding yourself if you're that you're getting that through buying a knockoff bag. I mean, today there's such a people have such a lust for this life they see on social media, on reality TV, and I mean it is totally unattainable except for very, very, very few people. 
Well, you see, where I think you're spot on in the sort of people you interview on gomology is that you are looking at the at the artisanal end. So that when you're interviewing people, they're people who are a lot of it is handmade rather than mass market or, or and it's made well, as far as I can tell, it's usually made in Hackney. <laughs> Um, which I'm very pro because my family were from Hackney, so I'm loving it. Um, have you have you done anyone in Stoke Newington, which is where I was born? I don't think. So you don't go as far as Stoke Newington. It has to just be Hackney, does it? I don't think anyone in Stoke Newington makes anything at all. Do they not? I don't. They make food. They make very good food. But but so it's about it's about artisanal production. It's about quality. Um, it it has handmade, not machine made, and so this sort of faux originality, or this faux, this novelty, this endless novelty, which is what the big brands now sell us, isn't a factor in the people you're talking to. You know, they, they, it is what they make is it aims to be timeless, doesn't it? Mm. And they are doing what I. They're very much doing what the unsung designers I talk about are doing, which is a slightly better pocket, a slightly better button placing, a slightly different cut, a better sort of waxing, um, a better use of merino wool mm. in a slightly different colour. You know, uh, the guys at Shackleton I thought were amazing because they've taken – very, very traditional designs, but done slightly different things with them, which is genuine creative improvement and genuine originality. But of course, if you were trying to photograph it, you know, create a wild photograph that goes on the front of a newspaper, it wouldn't work at all. So it is those incremental, largely unsung, except by you and some others, designers, that is really the point of my tuxedo land chapter is they were the ones turning the funny tailcoat into the dinner jacket that became the sleek suit that the women were wear that, that became the tuxedo dress. So I'm saying hurrah for them, as well as the Saint Laurent But they, they've got they've got their own rewards. On the cultivating um, uh, topic, I, I was put in mind that we were in uh, Barcelona a few years ago. And I was walking down Las Ramblas with my son, and I pointed out these guys with their blankets on the street, full of nice-looking bags. And I said, look at the strings they've got on the corners of the blankets, and see what happens when the policeman up the road starts coming this way. <laughs> and it was just in a flash, they'd gathered up the four corners of their blankets, the strings, and just basically over their shoulders and running down the road. Brilliant. It, it was a sight to behold because they had shut up shop within five seconds of the policeman being spotted. Yeah, and melted into the crowd insofar as you could melt carrying a... They were gone, but half yeah. an hour later, I think they were back again. Back again. It, it, the, the counterfeit problem is huge. Um, it's not often discussed publicly because I... That would be a very good way of telling everyone that you can buy a lot of fake 
branded goods that sometimes are so nearly indistinguishable from the real thing, um, but much cheaper. But one of the statistics um, that I came across was roughly in the time span that luxury goods sales tripled. Um, Counterfeit branded goods went up 200-fold. So whilst we're saying, and this goes back to my point about the book, whilst we're saying that quality, design, heritage, brands, craftsmanship matter to us, authenticity matters to us, we're buying fakes. And we're buying fakes in, in, in mammoth quantity. And that's only the numbers we know. Of course, we only know the fakes that we catch. So kind of, it's, it, I mean, in all these things, when I'm looking at authenticity, I have to remember that it's not something that's out there. It's a mirror. You get something similar, I think. I know we're hopping around, but when you, when people talk about AI, so those computer programs that learn on their own. Yeah. Uh, and, do uh, what's called, makes me think of nursery, or not nursery, unsupervised learning. In other words, these programs are so clever that you you set them off and you say, right, roam the internet, roam the world like a child being taught to go out and you know find out stuff for themselves, but minus a teacher or parents, and then come up with what you come up with. Um, and of course, once you do that, uh, I think uh, one of the famous examples was Microsoft uh, launched uh, a chatbot. So this was someone, she was called Tay. She was supposed to be a she. And it was someone that you could chat to on Twitter. And she would learn about people by chatting to them on Twitter. She was an AI program. So, you know, you can guess what happened. Within about 24 hours, she became the most foul-mouthed ranting, racist, sexist. <laughs> and Microsoft had to withdraw her for adjustments uh, because she had learned from what was out there. Uh, and every time, because people get very panicked about AI, I'd sort of want to say to them, yes, AI picks up an awful lot of horrid stuff, but, but it is some, it's a mirror. It's a mirror on our world. It learns from what we feed it, not from anything else. It doesn't make up its own world or its own mind. It goes out and investigates ours. And I feel that rather about the sort of the issue of fakes is it is pretty shocking. But something that we're doing is and that we believe or that we act on is reflected in that. So there clearly must be a massive market for it. Otherwise, they wouldn't be spending their time making them. There is something I wonder, though, because I see there's a lot of these pages on the web saying, this is how you spot a fake Louis Vuitton. This is signs of a fake, something or other. Now, if I'd been in the business of making fakes, I'd be reading those pages very closely. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm, I'm, I'm so sure they are. I'm so sure they are, um, because it's you know it's a, it's a gift, isn't it? It's an absolute gift. And again, because one of the themes of the book is 
that the fake problems of today are the fake problems of yesteryear and of hundreds of years ago, and in some cases, a thousand years ago. So the one you you mentioned just now, um, one of my stories is about counterfeit money, which has a long history, um, because it's such an attractive thing to be able to fake if you can. And in uh, Civil War, during the Civil War in uh, North Ghent South in America, both sides used counterfeiting money to try and impoverish the other side. But even before then, counterfeit notes were a huge problem because each state and each bank would issue their own notes. So this is where it links in. So I think it was a Mr. Thompson issued a huge, big, fat guide, pictorial guide, to what real notes in every state (laughs) looked like. And not only the real notes, but helpfully, so that people could find out, this was genuine, uh, find out whether they they were being given real notes or not. Um, Also, the bank officials' signatures, what they should look like um, to certify (laughs) real notes. And this book was, you know, about as heavy as three Bibles. Um, And it may have helped some people, some businesses work out whether people were paying them with counterfeit notes, but what it certainly did was help the counterfeiters. It was just, you know, practically a playbook for them. So again, you you get the same problems recurring. Yeah, I suppose today we've sort of solved that a bit with crypto and NFTs and all that malarkey, but... Well, Let's I don't, even go there. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I'm not sure whether we should go. I, I, I want to do some more thinking about NFTs because I think there, there will be places they can be useful. And I had, um, I've had a number of brilliant conversations about counterfeits because my counterfeiting chapter was serialized in The Guardian. And the brilliant thing about that was that suddenly I was put in contact with any number of counterfeit, you know, counterfeit hunters and people trying to fight counterfeiting. And one was one of them was a brilliant Italian called Matteo. And one of the problems he was trying to solve is the problem that's at least 2,000 years old, which is fake wine. Fake wine, so cheap wine in expensive bottles, basically, mm. is at least 2,000 years old because you have Pliny, Pliny the Elder, so, so round about Pompeii eruption time, complaining that none of the wine he that ever gets to his table is actually real. It's actually counterfeit. Uh, and this is an Italian working, Matteo, working with a number of vineyards so that their bottles of, of really very good wine don't get tampered with and cheap wine put in these expensive bottles. And the way he's done it is with an amazing something beyond a QR code, cross between a, a QR code and a tamper-proof seal that links to the blockchain. I don't know how are you across all these blockchain things. Yeah. What, what it means is that whatever happens to that bottle is recorded basically on, an, on, an, on a public NFT on the blockchain. Mm. Who buys it? Who sells it? What the temperature it's being stored at is? 
and most of all, if anyone opens the bottle. There will be a public record of that on the blockchain. Does the bottle know that it's been opened? The bottle will know because that is precisely the, 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 how they set up this tamper-proof seal. Okay. It just, you, you break it, the blockchain knows it. And therefore, anybody who wants to buy that bottle as the wine becomes more valuable as it gets older will just look at the record and go, I'm really sorry, but round about then it says it was opened. What, you know, what happened? And I just think it's a brilliant use of, of the technology behind NFTs to solve the 2000 year old problem. And it is an actual use, legitimate use of the technology currently being used for Stupid things. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it was absolutely brilliant. For sure the counterfeiters will come up with a, a way to counterfeit it, but they haven't yet. Shall we move on to another chapter in the book? Yes, I please. I want to talk a bit about stories, about the making of myths. Go for it. Or I should go for it. No, you go. Uh, yes. Well, I can just sort of toss out that it used to be that we made products that had a story. Nowadays, it's become more of a story with a product attached in some way. Um, I, I see marketing these days as sort of whittled into being called storytelling, and they're seeking authentic storytellers and the like. <laughs> it's it's a really fascinating thing about. 21st century or 20, late 20th century and 21st century marketing that the storytelling aspect and other things that are intangible, i.e. not part of the physical product, have become so important to the product. So when you buy, I don't know, a pair of trainers or a... Um, even a laptop, uh, certainly if you buy designer goods, you're buying into the story and the personality of the brand and the kind of the promise. I mean, I'm thinking a lot about trainers which inspire you to be athletic, don't they? They're going, just do it. And you see these pictures of amazing and beautiful athletes. So you're buying these things bundled in with the, pro the, with the product inspiration, aspiration, brilliant stories. But they're not actually the physical product. Which is peculiar, isn't it? To be buying those things. And it's not entirely new, but it has created a product, a promise, a, excuse me, a problem for those brands. Because it means that although they can have their marketing storytellers and their creators of images and cachet and all those other good things, brand, brand value, back at base, wherever their headquarters are, and then manufacture wherever it's most economically efficient to do so. By separating those things, they've allowed the count counterfeiters to counterfeit more easily. And, and the reason that they've done that is... All the storytelling is stuff that we as consumers consume before we buy the product. We've consumed it in the adverts 
or when we read the magazines that such and such celebrity is wearing it, we've consumed that um, for free, by the way. And then we buy the physical product. From the counterfeiter's point of view, all that value, all that money that's gone into storytelling and advertising and hiring marketing storytellers, simply the stuff that they don't have to fake. They just have to fake half of it, which is the physical product. So in a sense, brands have created the issue, the problem, or created an increased problem of counterfeiting for themselves. But that was probably not what you minded. Is it the storytelling bit that you mind? No, I mean, that is a, is a fascinating aspect. And I do wonder whether the brands actually think of it in that way and see it in that way. The fact that they've given away all the marketing, the counterfeit, and needed to sell their cheap trainers. Um, well, again, I was talking to one of the anti-counterfeiting guys who was being very, very happy about blockchain and saying it's marvellous we can... We can um, include much more information about the product and about its sustainability and about how it was sourced and the supply chain, he said, which consumers really care about. And I said, you better do that after they've bought it. Because if you give it away before, you'll just have the same problem again. So I, I, I do, I kind of feel the brand's pain. But on the other hand, they're doing this because it's the best business model too. And it's quite an old business model, the storytelling one. In 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 um, uh, in the chapter on brands, I talk. I don't know if it is the first backstory of any product, but the great luxury product of the 16th century was Brussels lace, uh, which was said to be woven so delicately of of such delicate flax and with such detailed and skilled weaving that it was much better than the plain old, tough old English lace. And they said it was better. Now, you've got to picture this because it was spun in a room that was dark, totally dark, except for one shaft of light that was allowed to illuminate the work of the lace maker. And she would work, because it was always a she, while it was still, while the flax was still damp to make these very fine designs and no light could come in and therefore no heat could come in to dry the flax out too quickly. And therefore she could make the lace finer and more detailed than anything the English could come up to. So it's a very memorable story, backstory about why that why Brussels lace is so much better, was supposedly so much better. I don't know if it was true, but it, I, for me, it was one of the first examples of selling something with a, with a backstory mm. so that people knew why it was better, why they should want it more. Sounds a bit too good to be true, and it does sound like terrible working conditions, but if that did they have to suffer for the product to that level? I, I don't know if it's true, but there they are sitting in a damp room with one shaft of light, and that is made into a product benefit. Yeah, you wouldn't get uh, you wouldn't get there today. No. If you said that, yes, this uh, fantastic dress is made in a sweatshop in a basement in Birmingham yep. by someone who's not even earning minimum pay. It wouldn't be a selling point. And it's damp. And it's damp. It has to stay damp so that you, she can weave it into the fine, the 
you know, more detailed lace patterns. Yeah. Um, now, I wanted to um, to go somewhere, a little rabbit hole, um, based on uh, a talk I was at recently. I don't know if you've come across the Norwegian photojournalist Jonas Bendixson, Mm-mm. but he gave a fantastic talk about a book he made called The Book of Verlis. Now, Verlis is a small town in um, Eastern Europe. I forget the exact country. But it's in Macedonia. Um, but during so 2016 okay. and onwards, uh, Vilas became the hotspot for fake news websites. I know. Yep. Now, there's been a lot of talk about that because uh, very enterprising young people there discovered that if they um, started websites with news articles that were tempting enough then they would get lots of advert clicks and they could make big money. Now, Jonas Bendixson wasn't that interested in that angle. He barely went there. But he went there and he took a lot of background photos, which he then took home and he bought avatars online, clothes for the avatars. His wife apparently complained that he was spending more money on clothes for his avatars than he did on himself. And he faked up all these photos, these situations. I made it into a photo book, which has a long intro and it has text. Now, the text in the book, he wrote the first paragraph himself and then a machine learning system wrote the rest. So he published this book as an authentic travel book about the Velis situation and and all the people there he'd supposedly met, which were just sort of little electronic figures, and expected it would take two weeks before he was rumbled. That didn't happen. Uh, so he had to start sabotaging himself by using uh, Facebook accounts, Twitter accounts that he was controlling that were attacking him, discrediting him, uh, saying that he'd never been there, he'd never talked to these people. But it took a long time before an ardent blogger noticed that um, the clothes the person in a the profile photo for a Twitter account was wearing the same sweater or something as a person in the photographs in the book and then started wondering. But he actually managed to con everyone with, I mean, this machine learning system is online. I've tried it. Uh, the avatars and all this, it's all cheaply available, but it was then totally inauthentic. I was sitting there. I was fascinated. This was such a strange story. I mean, how could we believe anything of this? Which then led me into randomly finding out about article spinning, which is another level of these websites, aggregating news, where they will take news articles from legitimate websites, run them through an AI system, which will substitute synonyms, restructure sentences, and out the other end comes a new article, basically the same content, but it's not the same article. Have you come across these? I have. And now that you mention uh, Bennington's book, I do remember it. Um, I've completely come across the AI text generators or paraphrasers. And actually on page, I think it's page 338 of my book when I'm talking about AI, um, I do actually use, put in, I have one sentence that I use as a prompt and then a couple of paragraphs that are AI-generated text. 
And then only after do I tell the reader, oh, by the way, you know, the last two paragraphs you've read weren't written by me, were written by these machines, and nobody has spotted it yet. So I, I, I absolutely know about these. I think they're completely fascinating. Um, they, I'm just wondering how, how much you, uh, want me to say about this. What they are mostly is they use something called GPT-2. Don't worry about that. Which is a, um, a product, an AI product from a company that was f- founded by <laughs> that little known person, Elon Musk. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> called OpenAI. Open, it was called OpenAI Research Labs. And they built these text generators that were AI. They learnt from everything else around them. And the highest level, GPT-3, they said they wouldn't release publicly, only for research, because it was so good that they feared it would be abused and used to flood the internet with really, really convincing fake news and misinformation. So most of these text generators that you see out there are one level below and still pretty darn good. Um, which is GPT-2. Um, and it, it, I mean, it's very convincing stuff, isn't it? When you look at it. Very convincing that I took a paragraph I'd written about restoring smelly old wax jackets. And I yep. put that in and then it allowed it to generate another yep. 10 paragraphs, emailed it yep. to a few friends and said, where do you think I stopped writing? Most of them were down paragraph eight or nine, just yeah. guessing. It was yeah. totally convincing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, I, I did exactly the same experiment uh, in my book, and, and nobody or none of the people who are reading or editing my book suddenly said, Alice, your style has changed into something rather mechanical here at all. So what do I think about them? They're already out there. Uh, I one I did find them quite amusing because I have to say some quite well-educated young friends of my son are being paid to do that kind of work manually. In other words, um, there are content sites out there who are paying bright young graduates actually quite well, about 100 quid a day to take articles from elsewhere and rewrite them. Um, so I don't want this to be spread too widely or some of my son's friends are going to be out of a job here. Well, they could work that more efficiently. Oh, yes, you're right, actually. They could just sit there and feed it through the paraphraser. Um, so absolutely, we're, we're in this very, very peculiar world. Um, where machines are generating huge amounts of human-looking text. What wor- but what worries you about it? I was trying to look into the legality of it. I mean, there's obviously ethical problems yeah. because you're basically stealing someone else's work and 
jigging it a bit automatically and making out it's your own. But legally, it's, it's tricky because how do you prove it? If you had manually rewritten it, then surely it would have been more okay. Um, and I don't do know it's legis- legitimately used for sports news and financial news, which says a bit about what sort of content that is. Yeah. Um, it was just mind blowing when I discovered this because it suddenly made sense why I keep getting these emails offering me free articles for the blog, and how they can sort of tailor make these on certain subjects. Well, of course they can because <laughs> it's just a machine just. They're just feeding it in. Out you go. Uh, but it just seems such a... I'm not sure I can use the word evil technology, but, wow, someone actually came up with that. Mm. And now it's being used for probably something it wasn't intended to. So in terms of these AI paraphrases, if you flip it around... What you actually get from these phrase makers who are just taking existing text and ideas and reasonably intelligently moving them around is you can also use the same technology to look for plagiarism. So the one you mentioned to me was not one I'd come across, was called Quillbot. They give you the option of a basic paraphraser, you know, put put the words in and we'll generate something different, but that has the same meaning. Then it says, but I wasn't prepared to pay the premium fee. (laughs) Because I I did put in some stuff from my book and I just thought, oh, you've got, and they paraphrase it. And I thought, oh, you are really, that's a really written in clonking style. Your paraphraser, your basic (laughs) paraphraser really is not very good at writing. But then I noticed it had higher grades so that you could be more formal or more poetic or more literary, but you had to pay more for those. So I haven't really tested out if they know how to, in my view, improve on writing. But then further down, what they had was a plagiarism checker. Uh, So you could feed in uh, a bunch of text and they would go out on the internet and to see how close it was. So the same AI that can make something that is close but different can also go out and look at things, look look up things that are different but too close. Uh, And I'm attached to the King's College London. And what I do know is that every finals essay or dissertation in academia anywhere is put through a program. They usually use one called Turnitin. Have you come come across that? Your, Your work will be fed into something very like the AI that you're worried about. And... It will come out with a report on how close this work is to plagiarism. So it will take the work and go and look out at the sources, publicly available sources and the source, research sources on the internet to see how much of it was original thought, originally uh, expressed in an original fashion and how much of it is a straight lift. 
and how close it is to being a straight lift. And in the end, you'll get a report saying, you know, this bit of, of, of the dissertation is original, this bit is a straight lift, and this bit is hmm, a bit too close <laughs> to some other things. I, I don't know whether that makes you feel better about it or not. It makes me worry a bit for the, for the poor students. I mean, how much original thought is there left out there? <laughs> <laughs> well, they've got to do some. That's mm. the whole point. They can't just do a cut and paste job. And just the knowledge that it's going to go through this, I think, makes them not do a cut and paste job. I think that's probably very true. I'm hoping Quillbot will come up with a Stephen Fry mode so that I can run all my text through it and it will suddenly become massively eloquent and grandiose. I'm sure somebody somewhere has could do, I actually that's really interesting. I'm sure somebody could come up with a Stephen Fry bot. <laughs> I, it wouldn't be too difficult because there's so much of his work out there for the AI to learn from. Should we issue that as a challenge? <laughs> well, I'm game. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Now, now that was a a, a personal uh, sort of diversion. I did want to ask you about something right at the end. Um, influencers and their culture of uh, paid-for authenticity. Where do you stand on them? Well, I was I was thinking about that because actually, well, the thing about influencers is that we know what they should do which is they should declare, shouldn't they, if they're paid or if they've been given a certain article for free or in order to promote it. And there are hashtags for that. That, that is the legal point. And, and, and it is also the etiquette. The etiquette is you don't rave about the new face cream or handbag or whatever you've been given to promote, you're meant to put hashtag ad or hashtag advert. So we know what they're supposed to do, don't we? Mm -hmm. They're supposed to declare it and become an honest spokesperson like the actor in a television ad who's holding up, I don't know, pint of milk or a bottle of wine and saying, you know, this is the best ever. And box we know it's an actor, box of chocolates, and we know they're paid. So the problem is the influencers who are not owning up, isn't it? I think it's that the influencers tend to be more regarded as friends and hence more authentic and uh, I mean, there has been a massive problem with people not tagging it as ads, but I think people don't really notice that either, because for an influencer to be truly effective, you don't want to realise that they're paid to say what they do. So there's a hole in, in between stage, isn't it, which is where they go, they write a little post going, delighted to be a brand ambassador for... So we, we know what that means. We sort of know what that means, but it it's not actually but it sounds it's a not bit clear. It sounds a bit tasty as well, doesn't it? Your brand ambassador. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. That and what you're not saying is I'm a salesman. 
for. You're saying I'm a brand ambassador, which is quite grandiose. Um, and it sounds, yes. So that's, that's a slight, slightly weaselly way of putting it. And of course, we know the other issue with influencers is goes, it, the subterfuge goes both ways. I mean, one of the things that the brands have found is that the influencers turn out not to have quite as many real followers as they claim. So they may be giving, you know, assorted freebies to their brand ambassadors, but their brand ambassadors' followers may be largely made up of bots and fake accounts as well. So you've, you've got, um, a series of <laughs> strange levels of dishonesty feeding on each other, don't you? It's sort of deception and counterfeiting and everyone trying to take advantage. Because clearly the brands are taking advantage of, say, young girls who are their brand ambassadors. Because it, they, if it wasn't more worth it for the brands to have them, they wouldn't have used them. But the young girls are thinking, wow, I'm so special because I'm a brand ambassador. Uh, so who's tricking who? There's absolutely a who's tricking who. But there is also, because early on in the book, I look at con artists and the anatomy of a con. And, and what is very important, a very important part of the con is the part played by what are known as shills. And shills are people who look like they're innocent passers-by, but they're actually part of the con. So if you've got, you know, the three-card Monty trick that mm. you see on, as it were, on street corners, um, there's always another passerby who plays it before you do and seems to win. Yeah. But, of course, they're part of the gang. Uh, and And... In many other cons, shills are people who look like your friend or someone you've just met, but are paid employees. And this is, I think, the case with many brand ambassadors, is that they are effectively shilling, it's called, shilling for the brand. They're not owning up um, and they're promoting it. And that puts them very much in the classic structure of a con. So I think I'm saying they're not great. No. Uh, can we map the other stages of the con into this? Uh, very, very probably, actually. Um, so we've got the setup and the shills. You've got the shills. Uh, if the... Uh, then you have the convincer. So they they usually will demonstrate online why the product is particularly good uh, then you've got the touch so you hope that the product is not too rubbish but you may find your customers are actually buying something that isn't nearly as good as it looked um, on screen but I think the thing that's really interesting is with the really classic and complicated con the way that the con men would get round and, well, the way they would stay out of jail would be that they had some kind of fix or deal with the local law enforcement 
or a fix or deal that the local laws didn't apply to them. And I think the parallel here is it's unregulated. Yeah. Because this couldn't happen on television. You would have to say that this is advertising or you would have to say in a magazine, this is a sponsored advertorial. So I think probably the most, the strongest parallel is, is the lack of regulation or recourse at the end. I don't mean to sound pompous, but I think it probably is quite a problem, isn't it? I think it is a huge problem. And I think the problem is really that if it had been regulated, it would cease to be efficient and would hence disappear. Best reason I've heard for regulating it. But then you have to get everyone on board in all sorts of countries and jurisdictions to do it. So you'd end up with influencers out of China or <laughs> somewhere. Yeah. And of course, that's what's happening on TikTok because TikTok doesn't care about any rules or regulations because you can't get in touch with anyone who runs it. And I just went to a talk last week that was about book talk. Book talk. Book talk. Um, an enormous number of influencers uh, on TikTok talking about the books they love, um, leading to fabulous sales of those kinds of books. And that was when I thought, do I beat myself up for not being in the romance or fantasy genre, which is where it really works. And having written a non-fiction book, and I thought, no, I don't. <laughs> I have actually noticed that. They have a, a shelf down at our local library with uh, the sort of TikTok favourites. So if yeah. it gets the kids to read, I'm all for it. Well, I thought that too. And it says it it has got the kids to read. Um, and there were certainly kids in the audience saying, you know, I thought books were boring and now I don't. Does this mean that you'll be doing little authenticity dances on TikTok to promote your book? They said they used the word authenticity so much in the presentation and the real attraction, and this is your influencer point, is that the people talking about books look like the people who are buying those books. Were you fuming and raging or were you... No, I thought, looking, it, was I thought, it, was, I thought it was fascinating. I thought it was fascinating. I knew that it was not going to be... Uh, necessarily the greatest channel for me, but I thought it was really interesting. Well, I mean, so much of this new technology is fascinating because we see, or we start to see what it's being used for to influence presidential elections, to manipulate wars in far-off places, and to get young kids to read books. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's pretty strange, really. Mm. But... And this is where I get unexpectedly optimistic because people don't expect you to be optimistic if you write about authenticity, is that it's the new technology is very democratic, as, as we know. It can be kids on TikTok. It is the very democratization of the technology uh, means that we can all fight back against fakes and against misinformation. And I, that's what I celebrate by the end of the book. Because I didn't go into that last chapter about authenticity, I, having done authenticity of people, authenticity of nature, authenticity of money, art, designer goods, myth-making. I needed to look at the, the form of authenticity that worries us all, which is the falsification of information. 
But that is where I got to feel most optimistic because we don't see or hear much about it. We hear an awful lot about fake news, but we don't hear about the increasing number of people and organizations and countries, not very, not that far from where you are, becoming really, really good at fighting it. Hmm. Final chapter did leave me with some hope because I do have a family member who went down a very odd pro-Russian rabbit hole after reading lots of pro-Russian blogs written by former intelligence officers. They seem to have disappeared now, but very convincing material. Mm. And once someone starts believing this stuff, it's really hard to get them back. Yeah. Unless the blogs disappear. Did you get him back? I'm not quite sure. We tend not to talk about it. Yeah. Because I'm trying not to encourage it. Yes. Yes. It's, it is very difficult. And um, in many ways, because once it's become, I think, a matter of identity almost, that they believe it. It's no longer a matter of fact or truth. It's become part of how they see themselves that they know this to be true. And you're trying to take that away from them. I think it's very difficult. Mm. Very sorry, I wasn't meant to sound bleak. On the other hand, one of the reasons the troll factories in Russia have um, are doing less at the moment is <laughs> partly because they've run out of money because the um, the banks funding them have been sanctioned. So, oh. so their um, their fake news factories are 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 running out of money. That's slightly encouraging. I'm starving them of oxygen, really. Then, so yeah. that's good. Yeah, we're defunding them. But seriously, the last chapter with did did, did give me hope with regards to these things because uh, I mean, what with American elections and I mean, things are just so bonkers. So places like Bellingcat, uh, open source uh, fact checking. I mean, just getting the facts out there has to be the way to to move forward. Uh, and I see a lot of talk about. Uh, school children being taught how to fact check or to sort of review their sources. I'm thinking, how on earth do you do that? I mean, really, with so many rubbish sources on the net, how can you even tell which is the good one? Because even the rubbish ones are so convincing. And you might say, well, go to Wikipedia. And then people say, oh, but Wikipedia is full of false facts and rubbish as well. Actually, Wikipedia is not bad. I don't think Wikipedia's that bad, but I was listening to a podcast. I might take this out afterwards. A podcast about a woman who was correcting um, Nazi facts in Wikipedia. Yeah. And it was a total war against the people who were Mm. putting them in. Yeah. And she was spending much of her day, every day, just going, trawling through these articles, correcting all Mm. the misinformation. I can't understand why people bother. I mean, oh, please. It's 2022. Aren't we more enlightened? Well, I'm a fan of Wikipedia. I 
not least because they have a they care about how reliable their entries are and they even have a page on wikipedia which is called reliability of wikipedia hmm. so you know they're on on the side of right i find other things that encourage me um i interviewed the um ceo of something called full fact and they and others are working on something called robo checking which would help your uh Nazi fact correctors, actually. Sorry, your denazification. <laughs> Sorry, we can't even say denazification now because it's it's been hijacked. Anyway, the the, the correctors um, to become as much as possible, and um, what they call a shazam for facts. In other words, you can automatically connect a factual claim to a source that can verify it or falsify it or check it in some other way, automatically, hmm. and automatically ping a correction. Now, yeah. that's going to save a lot of time, and quite a lot of that work has been, is, is been, well, a lot is, is being done and has been done. So it's not just the kind of misinformers who, who have the robots on their side. I'm just sort of worried because it seems we've lost the idea of what a fact is when the alternative facts come in. So you, you can have a service that checks against acknowledged facts, and then you have the alternative service <laughs> doing the opposite. <laughs> but, but they are like, because we do know, we sometimes don't, I mean, there are some facts that we can't yet check. So, you know, is there life elsewhere in the universe? Well, that's a factual claim. We don't know is the answer. There may be, there may be not. But most facts we can either check or work out how we're going to check. We can argue about them on the basis of evidence. And, and that's how you get this divide between the people who call themselves, I hope, tongue-in-cheek, the reality-based community. That's me. I'm in there. <laughs> and then what we very politely call the counterfactual community. Yeah which is the politest way we can put it. But they're not factual. No. That's especially important today, what with the proceedings in America now. No, because it's become, that lie has become part of their identity um, and who, part of who they are and part of their partisan beliefs and part of the group that they want to be associated with. It's not, no, it's not about fact, it's about belief. That doesn't help, but let's just be clear which one is fact and which is belief. Hmm. Oh, don't get too depressed. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, very hard to talk about this topic. I'm, I'm doing a, I'm on a panel called Who's Won the Battle? Who's Winning the Battle for Truth? Okay. This Sunday. And you know, my short answer is we are, <laughs> or we're starting to. We, we've, we're winning the battle for truth. We haven't yet won the battle for attention because all those people with the made-up stories, which are quite exciting stories or stories that make you feel outraged or angry or like storming a capital, mm. they're very powerful emotionally, but they're not facts. So we haven't won, we haven't, we've won the battle for truth. We haven't won the battle for emotion. We haven't won the battle for attention. We're on the right way then, hopefully. I think 
I think so. I think so. Okay, Alice, we've been down uh, many paths uh, over the last hour and a half now. It has been very enjoyable. Is there anything you'd like to mention, bring up in closing? Anything happening on the horizon? A book number two underway? Oh, gosh. Uh, no, uh, I'm just at the moment talking as much about book number one because it is the work of, of many years and in many fields. And I think I just want to say that authenticity is really about things that are important to us that we don't bother to talk about something being authentic or question its authenticity until it matters to us. And that's what I didn't realise until the end of the book, which was that whether you're in fashion, whether you're in art, or whether you're worrying about a person you've just met or some information that you've just read, the minute you start thinking, is it authentic or is it genuine, is it real?, that's a signal that for some reason, good or sometimes even bad, no good usually, is that it matters. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, Alice. Thank you for a wonderful chat. And I, to any listener wondering about the book, it's by Alice Sherwood. It's called Authenticity. I'll link to it in the show notes. I strongly recommend it. And thank you for being my guest today, Alice. It was a total pleasure. Huge fun. And, uh, okay, bye-bye for now. And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee. She's perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So, until next week, bye-bye. <laughs>